Hello, this is Kryn Hanald from Indented. I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Meacham and Dr. Chuck Ryback to talk about creative writing. So I'm just going to dive right in with some questions right away. Uh, first question, how did you know you wanted to write and how did you go about pursuing that? Sure. Um, how did I know I wanted to write? I didn't really until I was doing it enough that I kept going back to it and figured, okay, I like doing this, which was step one was that I like doing it. Um, and then it took sort of some external pressure to kind of point me in a direction that there was something out there for writing beyond my simply liking it or not liking it, <laughs> you know, that, Hey, you know, you can do this as a career or you can study this or you can, you know, pursue things that you, I, the short version being that I never really attached things that I liked with the possibility for a career or a profession. And once other helpful human beings um, pointed me in that direction, then I said, okay, I'll do that. So that's when I figured that I would try to be at, at least a writer in some capacity. I don't know if I would identify as a writer at all times. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Right. So there. Yeah. And you do have published books, both of you. I do, books, so yeah. There's proof. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so that I have proof that there are some times that I am a writer. Yeah. Dr. Meacham? So that gave me time to think about my cherished anecdotes. Um, so uh, I have different, less, like, good and more moral kind of motivation. So uh, I learned that I wanted to be a writer from two sources, or three actually, reading other writers, but also validation and uh, competition. So I love to talk about the bad motivations, uh, or what we think are bad motivations to do positive things. Um, so I loved reading Shel Silverstein, and I loved reading, uh, obviously, Dr. Seuss, and all of those kinds of um, writers when I was young, and I love the way they played with language and did kind of irreverent things. I read old mad magazines, which is a whole other generation, hard to explain, but definitely stuff mm -hmm. that was kind of dirty and funny and naked people drawn in them and stuff. So as a kid, that was really interesting to me. And so I was interested in that. And then my mother um, was earning one of her many postgraduate degrees and needed time to work, and I was being a pain, uh, needing attention as kids do. And she said, and it was I was like six or something, and she said, why don't you go write a poem? And so I did. <laughs> and, and like so, you know, and then she liked it. And so the validation part came in, and it was like, you know, hey, this, this is a thing I can do that I like doing that people also like. And so that's a really simplistic way of looking at it. Then when I got in elementary school, and those combined with competition, like contests, and then it was like I had bloodlust. Like I was like, I'm gonna win. <laughs> so, and so those things also combined to make me. It's competition actually is really good for me as a writer because I read something and I want to do it, or I read something that makes me mad because it could be better, and I want to beat that person. So, these little internal mechanisms that seem kind of, I don't know, unseemly or or not as generous and kind and wonderful and, and as my as my husband and Dr. Ryback here is saying, those actually help me a lot to kind of keep me going. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I'm like yes. competition, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> I can do better than that. That sucks, right? I'm gonna win that Pulitzer once I finish this book. Yeah. So. Just editing stuff in my head as I read. Yeah. Mm. Getting grumpy, I think, you know, mm -hmm. getting mad is such a good way of finding your way intellectually and kind of wrestling your way in. So yeah. we're scrappy. Okay, so what author or what work was mo most influential in your to your writing? 
Is that for both of us? Yes. Do you already know? Well, I already said some. Yeah. Like, I mean, and I loved, like, Wrinkle in Time. I mean, I can't Mm -hmm. reread that now because it it just doesn't, there's something wrong with it. But when I read it, it was, like, amazing. I loved The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which everybody should read because it was so different. It was such a puzzle. It was such character-driven fun. Um, But then when I got to college um, and still hadn't really committed to the idea of being a writer, just wanted to do stuff and I liked writing um I was a creative writing minor American studies major wholly unemployable um I wanted to I started reading Toni Morrison and then I and that blew my my read beloved just blew my mind completely you could do any of that stuff and I was like geez how do you do that and then also I read probably the only Faulkner that I'm he's read all the other Faulkner and he's like a genius and I've read one probably book (laughs) or maybe two and it was As I Lay Dying Mm -hmm. and the fact that you could do a whole entire novel from all of these totally different voices and perspectives I, I just I wanted to do that I thought that was the coolest <clears throat> thing so those th- those two books really <laughs> broke open and then Kurt Vonnegut just because he put drawings in and he and he was so funny and he's so yeah you saw him in person didn't you? I did it was such a geek out moment and <laughs> it was just like in the second row waiting 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 he's so good and I couldn't go up to him afterwards I was mortified um but he yeah just those I don't know seeing then that's such different writing all of it and then mm-hmm. seeing like I want to do that I want to try that and I never thought I could do it better so just to be clear that's you know I wanted to try to do it but never was that the competition so those are my people did you like mm-hmm. Faulkner too you, was that an inspiration for you? No, I mean I have imaginative inspirations. I think like Wrinkle in Time and Lord of the Rings and Stephen King and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't say they're writing inspirations so much as they got my mind going in a lot of ways. Um, I'm more influenced, I think, by non. I don't know, just different kinds of sources that people wouldn't normally identify as writers that I really identified with writers that sounded like me, <laughs> that sounded like normal people talking. And so I think it took me a while when you go through schooling and you're reading people that are speaking from the past and they sound different and very formal. And mm-hmm. so Tony Hoagland as a poet is really important to me because he wrote about things that I cared about and sounded like somebody that you could talk to um comic books frank miller daredevil the voice of that is really was sort of eye-opening rap music um you know those are my kinds of influences like Mm -hmm. early bloggers um people who could write about serious things and a more jargon, less, I don't know, a more slangy voice, or I think, uh, um, I don't know, that you could just, there was something about early blogging, too, that had an edge to it um, that I really appreciated, that you could write about smart, contemporary, important things and still sound like yourself. That So there, there is a little bit of truth to the gatekeeping coming down of the internet age even though all the rest of it sucks but um <laughs> that aside yeah an old man <laughs> i know i am grumpy um but like tony hoagland and you know people and if i were to go back like walt whitman's song of myself the 1855 version of course oh, right. is very i mean it's very different than what comes after that um <laughs> but it sounds so great and normal and aspirational and Okay, so can I go, like, 
a little bit back, and sure. I want to know what your favorite Kurt Vonnegut book is. Okay, so Slaughterhouse Five, mm-hmm. on the level of language, is perfect. I mean, it's a perfect book in every way, but mm-hmm. like even like like it's so good. It's everything. Like so, for me, I'm a real language geek like I love a perfectly crafted sentence but not all sentences are going to be crafted perfectly the same way and they aren't supposed to be so what what Dr. Iback here is talking about with voice like making sure it's appropriate so I I adore that but I I mean I did a whole gosh I did a whole sweep I did player piano and I liked that and mm-hmm. I, I read um oh what's the one with ice is it ice nine it's the end of the world cat's cradle mm-hmm. um I had that as part of a uh, American studies class. So I love that degree as an undergraduate. And we had to talk about apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the books that, you know, several of our, I love these great essay questions in college. I always aspire to do them as a professor. Several of our books end in apocalypse. Why? And I was like, ooh, I can do this. And so I got to talk about Vonnegut. Um, but I also love, I taught Breakfast of Champions in my postmodernism class. And that's got like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, drawings in there and illustrations. And it's, it's a, it's just a lark all over the place. And there's one that's an asterisk. It's very famous. And he said, just to illustrate the, the level of, of, you know, drawings and, and art and whatever sophistication of this novel, here is my drawing of an asshole. <laughs> and it's just like asterisk. It's so great. That's my thing. That's my jam. How do you decide when you're writing what you want to write next? Do you decide or does it just kind hmm. of come to you? Let's hmm. kind of fall into it, you know? Yeah. There's no planning, except when I wrote a draft for a novel, I planned that. Like yes. I didn't just fall into that. Um, and let us just give a moment to like talk about that because, you know, here I am over here, like I'm writing a novel and like I do talks on it. I'm doing all this stuff, and I and my process is really erratic and and whatever it is what it is. And he sits down systematically every day, a thousand words. Finishes mm-hmm. at eighty thousand, like in eighty days. I'm like, you're a poet. Quit it. But it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not, not impressive. It's actually easy. But back to your question, I just kind of fall into it. So the last book that I published was blogs that I just started writing out of Sadness, outrage and <laughs> despair, and but also humor and just the availability of the medium and the audience that was waiting to hear it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of fell into it. Um, yeah. Okay. And so in contrast, like to the word machine over here, <laughs> who I envy, I mean, I, I say this in a way of like, oh, I wish I had it. Um, you know, there's, I forget who it is. It's like Annie Leibowitz or somebody, one of the Leibowitzes, Fran, somebody says, you know, I write so slow that I could write in my own blood and never feel the weaker for it or whatever. Mm-hmm. That would be me. Um, but it's only because I'm so fussy and also it just feels super slow. And that's just, I finally have learned to understand that that's what I do. Um, mm-hmm. But I've always had a lot of sort of guilt. And and I also don't have a regular writing practice. So how do I decide what I want to write next? It's kind of like more about what the time I've got to do. Um, and then enlarging the field of writing to not just be fiction because in my head that's writing and that's not accurate that's not what you know I I did all of these blog posts for plowshares and some other places too and that was a different kind of writing and it was every bit as writerly as writing can be and it's just so I need to remember I've just imprinted or it's just like this groove in my head like well writing is fiction writing is your novel Um, so when I have the time um, sometimes I like to go visit my novel. I, 
So what I want to write next right now is I want to go back and get more work done on my novel, which is always really interesting because there's all these perspectives. And I still haven't burned anyone yet. And I'm like halfway through and it's a fire novel. I got to get to do that. So I guess you already, you guys already answered the writing process thing. Um, Do you have anything weird that you do, though, when you're writing? Like, do you need to like... No, I know what you mean. Like those like writer rituals. Yeah. Hmm. I used to think I did. Not really. I used to listen to the same album over and over again. Kind of Blue, Miles Davis. Yeah. For everything? Mm-hmm. For everything. That was just like your cue to go Because there's no words, and you just know every note after a while. So it's kind of like, no, no insult to Miles Davis, it's kind of a noise machine at, at a certain point. And <laughs> it's just great. We're all making ooh faces. I know. <laughs> it has mood changes, though, and so there are there are changes in it, but it was my favorite piece of music and it didn't have words and so it wouldn't it's really hard for me to listen to anything with words because I just hear them and See, interpret I them I do that I can't uh I listen to classical or I've tried listening to classical music with oh when I write yeah and it just I can still it distracts mm-hmm. me it's I guess for me when so I went on sabbatical for a year 2012 to 13 where I sort of started the novel and then accidentally wrote a whole other book and flash fiction and did all kinds of other stuff and so I taught myself I used to be prissy like I have to write in this space you know and like pretend that all these conditions had to be a go and then I could do it and what was great about sabbatical is I was like turned into a cat like there was no spot that I wanted for more than two weeks or a week um, and so I learned to write in a coffee shop and I learned to write in this little library cubicle, which was one of my favorite, most bleak places in the world. Absolutely no window, you know, whatever. And I just sort of trained myself to break through that, like, I need to be ready kind of thing. And so that's, uh, so that got rid of this anti-ritual. It was really helpful. And what even part of that, so I'd be in a coffee shop and I'd wanted to hear something to drown out whatever else. And they'd be like, lumber baron music. What would a lumber baron, you know, like, and I didn't want to listen to anything about trains or anything stupid. So I would listen to the planets. Like, what is that? Like, there's that whole mm-hmm. suite that's classical. Oh, I forget who that is. Very, like, um, mogul-y and Stravinsky? powerful. Igor Stravinsky? No, no it might be. Else. I don't remember. So I just... But yeah, this I'm, is a call-in show, so if you know, <laughs> please call in. He's gonna look it up. Wait, is it like what year is it from? Do you know? Oh, I have no idea. Like, is it from the classic? I literally put era? a thing out on Facebook that was like Lumber Baron music. What do I need? <laughs> and someone's like, "How about this?" Well, I think Ellen Rosewell, oddly enough, suggested it. You have it, I think. Right? Yeah, I downloaded some of it recently. Yeah, I forget what it was though. It's very like grand, and. You could feel the ego and the masculinity and the I'm going to cut down a canal to have my ships mm-hmm. go through kind of thing, which is what actually happened in Sturgeon Bay. Um, so, yeah. And then, but what was funny, I just would think this is hilarious. It's not outcast. No. Um, <laughs> Wait, okay. is it Prince? Um, so, uh, but on the way, so I would have this thing where I would come to the, during that sabbatical, I would uh, do a lot of work in the library, but I was undercover. I didn't want anyone to talk to me because I'm on sabbatical, so I'm not really here. And so I would drive in my minivan, and I had just discovered this performer. Maybe you've heard of her, Beyonce. I had never paid any attention to Beyonce before, but she was on Super Bowl at that time, and I was like, holy cow, I've been missing out. So I would drive to campus cranking in my minivan. It's just such a particular picture. Uh, Beyonce to go write my 1871 Pesh to Go novel. And for some reason, it was like that conditioned me to be ready. You know, um, say you'll never let me go or whatever was like my thing where she's like doing her drum major or whatever. I'm like, now it's time to go write about Belgians. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. 
It's something about like some music that like really gets you going. Like, like it's inspirational. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Like this is well. I mean Beyonce. We should all have that kind like, of. Like personally, I have the Tiger. Oh, yeah. Survivor. Yeah. That's there actually an incredibly good song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's really like I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. Here Green you go. Day was that for me for a while. Yeah. Oh, the whole album you mean? <laughs> the... Oh, American Idiot oh, was sort of. Yep. Just what I needed mm-hmm. at yep. the moment. Yep, it's cleansing. It really like was. Fire. Yeah. Uh, so you both have books published. How did the process work? Hmm. It's hard. <laughs> it really is. Um, it just depends. I think it's dependent on genre, for one. Mm-hmm. And so when I started thinking about, okay, I want to publish a book, the only avenue open to me was the contest circuit. And so that's what I did, was put together manuscripts for contests. and This is for poetry. For poetry, yeah. Because yeah. it really, I mean, you couldn't send a poetry manuscript to a publisher out of nowhere and just be like, hey, publish this because it would nobody would buy it and mm-hmm. they wouldn't make any money. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that how it works for poetry? Do you have to like get uh, like it, kind of known a little bit? In I think journals? so. Okay. Unless you're, I mean, there's always exceptions, you know, unless you're like Ali Sheedy or something. And, <laughs> hey, I was in the breakfast club <laughs> and I also wrote a book of poetry. Did she really? Was that her? <clears throat> yeah, Ali Sheedy. Pub- uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, it's just, it's really hard, which is why poetry as a genre has become really academic mm-hmm. in its reading culture and in the participants. Where I mean, in fiction, most of the people who are well-known are also not academics. You know, they don't need to be. Not everyone. I mean, there are exceptions to this, but in poetry, I think most of the people that are read and widely known are academics. I mean, even Billy Collins, uh, Tracy K. Smith, who was just in Wisconsin and gave a reading. She's the poet laureate of the United States, but she's also a professor at Princeton. <laughs> you know, she, there is no, yeah. So anyway, it was the contest circuit, which I think applies for fiction, and I know it does, and I'll Professor Meacham will speak about I this. I will in a moment. You know, but the good thing about it is that it narrows your it narrows the competition in some ways because you had to you had to pay to play that in order to get manuscripts read you had to pay a fee and readers would read um, you know the editors would pay up a pool of readers and having read for contests I was happy to be paid to do that (laughs) because it takes a long time Um, but it was painstaking you were a finalist a lot runner-up and then the book that eventually got taken the first chapbook I had to I won a contest that published that and it was picked by gosh Ron Rash is his name who was a Pulitzer Prize finalist at that time and it's just kind of it was luck but it took years to finally get to that point and then the process after that was totally different but that's a Mm -hmm. whole other well the process after that you went through a Main Street rang like an independent publisher. Mm-hmm. And that was a contest again. Right. And then I was picked from a pool. I, I didn't win a contest per se for that, but I was among a pool of writers that submitted to that that was picked. But then once I was a known quantity and that book sold a lot for a book of poetry, I mean, it sold thousands of copies and I got royalties for it and I did readings and I promoted it. And then I was a sort of a proven entity and the pathetic world of poetry (laughs) and 
they just said, okay, sure, we'll publish your next book. And that's what they did. And then your your most recent book, the UW Struggle. But the nonfiction one was solicited. It mm-hmm. was somebody contacted me and said, hey, can you... Because of, their, of your blog. Yeah, can you curate your blog into book form and we'll publish it. And I was like, word, okay. Because I think that's a, a really good point to be making about these multiple paths to publication for mm-hmm. just one person. Yeah, there are so many different ways. That, that doesn't even include things like reviews and... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been published in Inside Higher Ed, like journals like that. I don't think of them as publications. That they're To me, they're just things that I happened to think and wrote down and people were interested in. Um, but the last thing that I wrote, too, was solicited. Somebody wanted me to write about protests for Bramble, which is the publication of the Wisconsin uh, Association for, I'm going to get it wrong, the writers thing, the mm. writers group. Right. Look it up and then you can say that again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I wrote a poem in comic script form. The one on, the, like, the Scott Walker. Yeah, and it rhymes, okay. so it's a poem, but it's also got illustrations in it. Um, and But that was solicited, too. But nobody would solicit work from me unless I was, unless I had a record of publication, too. So eventually I think you get to a point where things get a little bit easier, where mm-hmm. people might reach out to you. You become like a human Google search result. You know? like <laughs> eventually, you just move up in pages, I guess. Yeah. The power law dynamic, if mm. we can call it that. God, so, you're so smart. If you wrote um, the like the graphic poem, mm-hmm. who did the illustrations? Oh, her name is Tori uh, Wellhouse. She, huh. She's in the uh, Fellowship of Poets. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, and I actually, I tried to get Carly Eyed, who Kate Farley in the room knows, mm-hmm. who is a comic uh, illustrator, but she's under totally different economic and time pressures. Mm-hmm. And um, frankly, I couldn't pay her enough to do it. And she's totally worth the money that I would have needed to pay. So, um, but then they, they liked the idea. I asked them if they would just publish it. The other idea was I, I had it written in script form that was an invitation to an artist to come in and do it. And so there were directions kind of built into it mm-hmm. that were sort of like, okay, you know, that that where I would address the artist directly and say, this is your moment, you know. Mm-hmm. and um, But then they really wanted something different. They wanted illustrations. And then the way the illustrations that are in there, I like a lot. Um, so and I like collaborations like that. I like I like giving things away and letting people turn them into other things. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mind that at all. I don't really feel ownership of certain things. And Dr. Meacham, you wrote fiction. Mm-hmm. So how did the process work for you? Um, <clears throat> so the first, so I have two collections of short stories. Um, one is called Let's Do. And that um, came about in a couple ways. Um, the book itself was the dissertation for my PhD program. So you had a, we had creative components. We had to do an article, and then we had to do like a creative, like a book, right? Like a mm-hmm. book of something creative. So that was that was what I had put together for that. And so um, I had because they're short stories, they could be published in journals. It wasn't like trying to take a novel excerpt mm-hmm. and try to make it self-contained and publishable in a shorter format. So I um, had a number of publications that came from that, actually almost 
almost everything from that collection got published in journals or won contests and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I was terrified of this very thing I teach my students to have confidence about, which is approaching agents. And I just was like, I can't, I don't, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. Plus, I hate to say it, but short story collections are just slightly cooler in the world of publishing than poetry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are not considered especially if they're interlinked in some way yeah but they're not they're not big sellers so if Mm -hmm. you write fiction the next question that any agent would have for you would be when can we expect your novel Mm -hmm. or do you have a novel and multiples try to sell this thing but we'll for sure be able or we'll have more chance of selling your novel usually a book of short stories will break big if one of the stories gets made into a movie or something like awakening is not awakening arrival Oh, it's just the best. So I bought Ted Chang's book of short stories for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the case of me, uh, so I got notice from those like individual awards that were published or the stories that were won awards and were like, hey, hooray, you've got this thing. And then some agents would be like, hey, can we see your manuscript? And then, then I would send it. And then that was like this terrible rejection. It was like, please come to my party. Never mind, we don't want you to come after mm-hmm. all. Because then they'd say, they'd say, instead of getting one rejected, it was the whole book <laughs> so which is normal like it's not mm-hmm. but if it's a first time through it doesn't make you say I want to go the agent route so I did the contest route too and let's do as a finalist in like three contests and that you know and I was just getting ready to say forget it I'm tired of this whole thing this went on for like a year which isn't really that long uh, but it felt like it mm-hmm. and then it won and it won um, it's also taught me a lot about who your ideal readers are so my collection and all the stories in it in that first collection did really well with Midwestern publications. And so and I wasn't understanding that until I started to see, oh, Indiana Review really likes my work and this seems to work out. And and so my book, Let's Do, won a contest run in probably by University of North Texas Press. So it's like they published things on chili peppers and like the Alamo. And then here's this like contest they run for fiction. Well, the person who was the celebrity judge was from Nebraska. She's a Midwesterner and and a really acclaimed writer. And so it was like, oh, okay, this is telling me something about where I should try to place work or who might be interested. And so for the second um, accidental collection, Morbid Curiosities, um, I was trying to write my novel, but I really wanted instant gratification. And I was like, God, it's taking forever. I feel terrible at it. And so I wrote a collection of flash fiction. And every single one of those got published in journals and I was kind of excited about this new online journal that I'd been hearing so much about because the last time I'd sent work out literally snail mail literally stamps um and so it was like exciting to do that and then I entered that in the contest because because that's a much harder sell um a book of flash fiction it's tiny um and so that ended up getting taken by a press and then here's the last part I'll say which I think is so funny I had one of the stories that was in that flash fiction collection, also had been published in Indiana Review. Again, I was trying to win a contest. Competition, I'm telling you, it's great. Um, and it was a finalist. It didn't win, but it got um, published in the mm-hmm. in Indiana Review. And an agent was looking, reading for who do I want to represent and contacted me from this like 500-word story uh, that was like sort of about my novel. It was Mrs. Williamson Winds the Watch. It's about a watch that's found in 1893 or something, and it goes back to the fire. And uh, he's like, do you have a book? Do you read writing a novel? I'm like, I am writing a novel. And that that led to me having a relationship with him. I have nothing to sell right now, so I'm not the best client, but he still <laughs> talks to me. 
and that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so when I've he's seen about 150 pages of the novel, and I'm and he's being nice about not pushing to get more because right. he knows books are slow. So that's it's this goofy path that I had as well. So yeah. And our, our journals like that, if they see someone from the Midwest and they're in the Midwest, they'll be like, oh, we like you. Maybe. I mean, I was always submitting, though. So it's okay. not like, I mean, I was doing that curating. After a while, I realized, like, maybe I won't get into Gettysburg Review or maybe The New Yorker, which would be funny anyway. Um totally different kind of market uh isn't my thing maybe i need to stop east coast or west coast um maybe zoetrope is never going to care there are lots of place dependent publications though like midwest midwestern gothic yep. is where i've published there but there are even lots of contests where yep. the winner will come from a particular state like a contest in i saw it it was washington state you know because i was like "Ooh, this contest sounds good i want to enter like, but i have to no. be a resident of washington to win oh, so yeah. Forget it, and but that's a. I think that's a cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. I would love to see a Wisconsin type of contest like that, a we're, novel by we're working on a writer it, right? in Wisconsin, and um, especially in the Midwest, which I think is kind of a stepchild to Southern writing and East Coast New Brooklyn. York writing. Yeah. I just can't read another book set in New York City. I just don't care <laughs> no, at all. And either. what about Maine? And Maine, I'll take. That's you know, cool, that's Stephen, Stephen King. King right? yeah, yeah. Let's so it. let's do it because it's Rock. just, I mean, it, there's nothing to it that feels Maine-ish other than there's like roads and trees and farmhouses. Like it could be anywhere. And some crazy, like, and terrible, demons, spooky right? people. Pets <laughs> you know, that come back from the yeah, dead. True. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm just talking about, like, I don't know how to explain it. More like a sensibility. I don't know. Maybe... Maybe Midwest people who come from the Midwest or are raised in the Midwest are just like, are like mm-hmm. although you're Buffalo, so you're technically like East Coast. Um, mm-hmm. You are, right? Yeah, I'm from the East Coast. Yeah, yeah but totally. does Buffalo count itself in that sort of? Yeah, I mean, if you're from Buffalo, you're from the East Coast. Literarily, like. Oh no, I mean Buffalo is a different literary kind of town. Because. Because it's not New York City. <laughs> you know, it's on the other side of the state. That's not New York City. In your Rust Belt. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. It's a different kind of town. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother. But I guess that's my point. It's like, you, you know, the, once you discover who likes your stuff mm-hmm. and then you sort of see the trend of the, the, the little dots sort of lining up like, oh, okay. Yeah. Which is another way of saying editors are real people. Yeah. And there are editors who will like you and want more from you at times. I've had editors reach back out to me and say, hey, yeah. I remember this thing that you wrote. Do you have anything? And they just, yeah, yeah. I mean, their editors are people who love and care about reading and writing, and it's nice when an editor, no matter even if it's just a poem, if they like what you do, it's mm-hmm. it's really sweet, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that they'll that you have. There's a connection there. They won't just. Well, I mean, a good editor won't just forget you, right? You know, right. So, agreed. Okay. Um. So I have a question about illustrate or not like illustrations but the covers of books oh yeah how does that work we have stories everybody cares about the covers right yeah i i don't know i searched for um the covers of mine and i wanted them to be paintings i wanted them to be paintings by contemporary artists and so the first one was by an artist named Gwen Manfred who's in California I still follow her work I really liked it um it was for the tongue and groove as a 
the first full-length book of poetry, and then the second book, War, was by, um, I forget her name right now, but she's she was a student at Syracuse at the time. Mm. And they, I don't know, they just fit what I was going for at the, at the time. Um, the cover of War is a, I can't imagine a different cover for that book. It's a hand doing shadow puppets, and the shadow on the wall is a wolf's mouth, and just fit, you mm-hmm. know? But then there's a the whole thing of contacting them and signing a contract with them and getting rights to use it for a certain amount of publications. And so I tried to use the same artist for the second one, actually, but she just wanted too much money <laughs> for it. And it's like, okay, never mind. And, then, and, and I think our past to covers reflects the kinds of presses that we've worked with because we've had extraordinary control over the cover mm-hmm. that's not common if you especially the bigger publishing houses have you know divisions devoted to mm-hmm. that and you get approval maybe maybe no um, if you like publish a science fiction novel they've got like a whole SWAT team of artists that yeah. are ready for space stations and lasers or and romance ships has and, like you know which which yeah. chest what torso do you want <laughs> which is How kind of fun shopping in the wind yeah exactly so for us I mean like again you know let's do um I had there was a painting that struck me and I was like this is this is what I want um it's a it's like a photograph and then it's uh painted over and it's all these people that look like they're in a mall and then there's just a woman that's just in color sort of in green just sort of stopped and it was Mm -hmm. like yeah that's kind of it's a sort of lonely among people collection and it's so that that made sense and then the second book I was super lucky with because one of the main stories that I had written, it was uh, Morbid Curiosities is all the sort of artifact driven and like objects and stuff that leads to the past and like the world, you know, whatever. There's all this sort of stuff in it. And one of the things I wrote about was um, this photographer named John Crispin had done a series of photographs of suitcases left behind at this uh, Willard Asylum for the Insane in Ovid, New York. I'm putting that in quotes, insane, because that's an old-fashioned way of talking about these things. And so um, from, like, the late 1800s through the 1960s, like, people would come to the asylum, quote it again, and uh, have these grand trunks and suitcases of all their stuff, and that would be beautifully wrapped in white paper, and there's a gorgeous string they tied up with, taken up to the attic, and they'd never see it again. And so this, once that building was getting ready to be taken down, John Crispin, the photographer, went in and took pictures of the space and everything, and then would take a picture of that wrapped suitcase, and then what was inside of it, and he'd pull out each object, so it was fascinating. And so I wrote a piece based on that, and some cool stuff has happened since then, with that piece was called Cases. Um, and so for the cover, the people at New Delta Review who published the chapbook, they had this terrible idea for the first, I mean, it was the worst, I it, did everything on a cover I hate, which is like italics and calligraphy somehow at the same time, and then mm. in pink, florid, and like just weird. And I was like a guy under a table, and I had to, I was like, are you kidding me? And so I was like, I was like, how about, can we try to get rights, because we had no budget uh, to get to this. And John Crispin, of all people, the guy, let us have an image. And he said, just make sure I get credited. So that's the cover of that book. And so on the front is one of those um, open cases, and it's got like, it's a, like mirrors and beauty implements, like mm-hmm. brushes. And then the back is that one of those gorgeously, It's that's the same case wrapped, mm-hmm. and it's so cool. Is there any influence from what is popular today when thinking about publishing something that you're writing? Me. Like, um, you know how I feel like right now we're kind of, everyone's kind of into like the dystopian books. Oh. Mm-hmm. And well, his is like a sci-fi that. novel. 
you should talk about your novel. Do you mean like like what's um like what's in I guess mm-hmm. um does that have any influence when you're thinking about what you're writing I guess it depends if what's in is good <laughs> you know there are lots Amen. of things that are in that suck um true but the Hunger Games was really great you know and the Hunger Games and things like that are they're blessing a blessing and a curse and mm-hmm. They're sort of like Led Zeppelin. You know, they're really good, and then everybody who tries to be them is really terrible. Okay, because I was waiting to hear after that, that was bad. Um, <laughs> what? And was so bad? The Hunger Games is amazing, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. it's so good. Um, but it creates a formula or can. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, I think you'll see things like Hamilton having a cross-genre influence because it's so good and it gets my mind going for sure um there are actually novels now that are like the fanfic mm-hmm. for that it's like hamilton's heart or something and it's like somebody's trying to capitalize on yeah. but that came from a non that came from a history book by joanne freeman or friedman she was like one of the resident scholars on hamilton the musical and also ron cherno mm-hmm. with the dead dudes book on hamilton yeah. too um, I guess for me, I'm right specifically here and now. I'm a person of trends because all I want are podcasts. Hello, here we are, <laughs> and I'm living my dream. Um, and so that's the only way I want story, though. Like I don't, I I cannot read a book, and which is I shouldn't be telling you this as chair of English. I'm like, hey, let's have this new program, but. That's just where I want to be consuming. That's where stories are living for me is in this like multiple voices and stuff. So I have no desire to make a podcast. I don't, I don't, I won't turn that around. But I do think perhaps if I want to try to make a bridge between that, I think so much of what I'm trying to do in this novel, it is so multi-voiced. There are these like smaller chapters of sort of flash fiction, which are from the perspective, like first person of somebody else mentioned and they tell a secret like something that you wouldn't mm-hmm. know was going on mm-hmm. and a, a spoiler alert because you'll all forget this by the time i get it published in 15 years and that is um that each of those in the first three sections are narrated by someone who's going to die in the fire but you you know you'll learn that i know i'm sorry i just realized i was doing that and i feel like i should tell somebody um and so that's in contrast to all these other perspectives so i think that's part of it is i just want to hear voices of, mm-hmm. and stories that i don't ever normally happen upon but in a like a consumable form I can just like binge it or get through it and and I'm fascinated by it Mm -hmm. so I don't know I'm not trendy I mean historical fiction is like the oldest I think it literally is like the first novel Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean the you know historical fiction I think I I think the stuff I'm interested in right now it's not like literary fiction seems to change a lot in terms of here's a superhero I mean it's really not a Mm -hmm. trendy thing I don't feel like but I, I kind of like that. And and the other novel that at some point in my life I'd love to be working on is my second novel is um, uh, this in 1947 or 9 or something in this town in Oklahoma, all of these like social psychologists or child behaviorists descended and then decided to study childhood. And it's to me the, the mix of that is fascinating. And that to me is allowing me to have some fun with form, which I, I've been told by my agent probably isn't the thing to do in the Peshtigo novel because people are looking for pretty traditional storytelling. But I've had all these formal like playing with experimental passages of like 
um, cat calling down the street as a girl's trying to walk down the pesh to go, you know, and all the men mm-hmm. and all that. And I had it in this really kind of formal, playful way. And I'm like, that's probably not this novel. But in this other novel with the scientists, I get to play with these. Well, I've been told this. Like, I'm just not supposed to. Um, in this, the scientists and stuff, like, I can play with the form of that more. And so that feels that feels more trendy. Not House of Leaves or anything like that, but I can play right. with text and I can play with um, different kinds of language. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. Yay. Um, <laughs> anything you're currently reading? Oh, I already ruined that one. How about you? Oh, you're I, reading stuff. I started reading this book last night called Nancor. It's, <laughs> a, it's a really weird name. <laughs> what is that? It's a it's a Japanese novel. It's translated and it's a mystery. Um, and so I I had read the description of it. So I don't know. I if there's a any advice seekers out there, I think you should go try to read hard things. Yeah. At times, you should try to read something that's difficult, and you should try to write something that's difficult and not just be caught up in consumption all the time. Um, and so I, I did a little search for, like, things that, you know, because I'm really corny, and so I, I'm the person who will Google search, like, the best book that you've never heard of, like, things like that, You're right? such an old man. And so... Planet. Yeah, so I did an old man Google search, wow. and then I read the summary of this. Snapchat, what's this? This <laughs> Japanese novel, and so it's um, the premise is I, the main character. I only read the first chapter, but the his parents, his mom had recently died, and then his dad has cancer and is just about to die, and so he walks into his dad's house, and there's a closet door that's open, and he finds a box, and it has a handbag in it and a lock of hair huh. in the handbag and that hand, the lock of hair is like wrapped in something that has his mom's name on it huh. but the hair is black and his mom passed away when she was older and so it wasn't like a memento from her dying or, or whatever and so he then has the this memory of coming home from the hospital when he's like four and thinking that his mother had been replaced with someone else Whoa. Um, and so underneath the handbag in this box and so rebecca this gets to your like the multi-voices thing that's what i'm really drawn to is that there are four like books inside of this box and they're all titled nancor one two three four and so the speaker has no idea what that means like what the word means and so it's going to be like this unknown history of his parents who I think are like serial killers or something. And Whoa, they know suddenly we're all like, like I, I oh, okay. No um, <laughs> you know, but it. I, I really like books that have characters experiencing other people's you know, frame stories, mm-hmm. voices in the past, voices in the present, that kind of thing. So that's what I'm reading, Nancor, N-A-N-Core. I thought you said Mancore. Not Mancore. <laughs> I was like Nancore. Very, very no. confused. <laughs> no, I think a Mancore is an animal. I, I, like a unicorn yeah. or like a. I think it's a Manicore, like the Star Wars thing, Same right? Thing. Yeah, yeah. Manatee. Okay. Manatee core. It's all gone to heck. Anyway, um, as I mentioned, I apparently am not reading books lately, and I am a consumer. I love mm-hmm. consuming. It's the best. But you read best. Station Eleven, right? I read all kinds. Oh, I mean, it's really I'm a good. lit professor. Yeah. Like I've read a lot of things. And my, mm-hmm. I feel okay about taking this break. Okay, and wait, that's not really recent, is it? 
No, but it's fantastic. What Gorgeous. Year was it I yeah, it was she wrote a book like five years ago. Oh, oh wow, is that really that long ago? Okay. You say I read a book five years ago? Well, that's. I mean, Station Eleven came out what like five years we ago. We don't need to be harassing. I, what mm-hmm. I am <laughs> listening to on audiobook when I make the crossover into long form narrative that is like known as a book, um, is actually I the Susan Orlean is. Um, a really great, funny, irreverent writer of nonfiction. And uh, she has this book called The Library Book, mm-hmm. which is so nerdy and amazing. But it's also really cool because, and it's a book book, but I'm listening to it. Um, but we she, ha- you have it too, right? My mom actually mm-hmm. got it. My mom's a big reader. Um, and so uh, she... She doesn't read off her phone. No, like this is like it's in the mm-hmm. library book. It's hardbound and it's like got all these geeky print touches mm-hmm. to it. She but holds this object in her hands and reads it. And the point being, um, that uh, the library book is cool because it, it braids together the story of an arson in a library in Los Angeles, one of the branches there, and. Uh, so there's kind of mm. a mystery in uncovering that. And then um, the Susan Orleans experiences with libraries um, and then kind of like why libraries, what they do. And so she's these fascinating chapters about she actually burns a book uh, mm-hmm. to see what that's like. And she talks because, I mean, this is she's talking about the status of books and stature of books. And there's literally an arson books burn in this. Yeah, in, in this. Good. And then she also um, there's a whole chapter on like war and libraries and I mean, like, what, why during, you know, World War II, like, you go after, and, and anywhere, you go after the libraries, you burn, especially mm-hmm. why that was so terrible for Jewish people, because they're the people of the book, and this is like this, and so, like, that's this extra level of just um, crime and oppression and cruelty, and and just so that's, like, it's fascinating, but it's also funny and interesting, too, and very dear about, it's kind of like a memoir at the same time, so mm-hmm. I love that book, it's fascinating. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Rebecca Meacham and Dr. Chuck Ryback. If you want to get a hold of our guests, follow them on Twitter, Ann and Chuck Ryback, or find them on the UW-Green Bay English page. Indented was produced by Kate Farley out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Our podcast art was created by Kimberly Vlees. If you haven't heard, the UW Board of Regents approved UW-Green Bay's proposal for a new writing degree, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Writing and Applied Arts. Sound like exactly what you want to do? The university will begin accepting students for this degree in fall of 2019. If you have any questions on being an English major, visit our Ask an English Major page at uwgb.edu English.